Hey everyone, welcome to CookPod, the podcast that's a coffee lover's dream. I'm Peter Barrett. week I talk with Jeff Gordinier, food editor at Esquire. His new book, Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World, drops on July 9th. It is currently available for pre-order. It recounts the three-plus years he spent traveling with Rene Redzepi of Noma fame to Copenhagen and also to Sydney and Mexico a number of times for the pop-ups and then reinvention of Noma back in Copenhagen. It's a terrific read, engaging, interesting. Uh, we talk a little bit about the use of the word poetic to describe it, and uh, well, well worth your time. He's a fantastic writer. I've admired him since I got into this business, uh, and he's a terrific guy in person, uh, very generous with his time. We had a free-form talk that went to a lot of places. I'm not going to even try to summarize touched on a lot of different points uh, relating to the present and the, the state of restaurants today, uh, relating to the past, relating to his trajectory, writing about music and culture to more specifically writing about food. And uh, yeah, I think we got to a lot of good places. I really enjoyed it. We spoke in the Irvington Town Hall reading room, which is one of the few surviving such rooms that was designed by uh, Lewis Comfort Tiffany. It's a beautiful room, wood paneled with uh, tile mosaics and original light fixtures, and it was very elegant. He's the Gordinier on Instagram. I am Cookblog on Instagram. So without further ado, here's my talk with Jeff Gordinier. contrast between the shiny new bridge yeah you know which has this sort of calatrava yeah. vibe yeah and then you get That's off and immediately in the funky old stone walls you yeah know, of westchester yeah it has this very particular i know kind of that's feel. true and uh yeah we rent a house around here mm-hmm. um and uh the rent is somewhat exorbitant but we have a hudson river view from our bedroom and for that alone i'm willing yeah. to spend an extra thousand a month totally yeah, you yeah, know yeah. it's just it's so nice to wake up and see that and there's so many different moods in the hudson river it's a very moody yeah. body of water and well it's different every hour kind of right? it really it, is it never gets boring sometimes it's brown sometimes it's bright blue sometimes it's frothy with white caps sometimes yeah. it's jet black um sometimes it's very torrential and moving around it's just an amazing um, treasure. Yeah. Like I, I just love to, to <laughs> waste time staring and looking at the Hudson River but for a short time we lived um, more inside the county more in the, the middle of Westchester County and uh, for a variety of factors we had to move mostly because we had a negligent landlord hmm. but a lot of it was I just like longed to be near the river again. Yeah. Like once you get get that in your blood it's difficult to shake. I just wanted to be close to it. Yeah. I have, uh, you know, I love the mountains. Um, I, I love where I live. I wish that I had some kind of a body of water closer. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I mean, I can get to the Hudson River, but it's not right there. And I don't, the property I live on is, you know, it's sort of on a hill and it's oh. got beautiful forest, but I, oh. I, but I don't have, like, I would love to have a little stream or a pond or something like that. Cause the water, the proximity of water really does something for me. Oh and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wherever does. I go next, you know, I think there should be water. Have you been to that diner that, um, was just written about on Grub Street that, uh, sort of was refurbished and reopened by a guy who worked in, in, uh, Copenhagen with... Christian Bugliese. Oh, outside of Hudson and Tacoma? Yeah, it's the one that you, you pass when you're driving into Hudson. Yeah. I haven't, not since they reopened. I want yeah. to. Yeah, I really want to just, get up there. Was it Ruth Reichel just posted about it or something? Yeah, Ruth Reichel posted about it, and then Grub Street's Chris Crowley wrote about it like today or yesterday. It's on my list. Uh, it's on my scouting list um, in my annual Esquire list and the best bars list and everything. I always like to give a nod to the Hudson Valley or the mm-hmm. Catskills if I can because to me it's like, you know, the the home team for yeah, me. Absolutely. And also it's a lot of exciting stuff is well, there's happening. There's a lot of talent. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of talent and a lot of like risks being taken. Like I'm, I'm really smitten with Brunette Wine Bar mm-hmm. in Kingston. Yeah. I mean everything about it, the, the design – the wine list, the snacks, the mm-hmm. the portraits of Patty Smith and other brunettes in the bathroom. You know, like I loved every touch about it. Yeah. It seemed incredibly intentional and welcoming. And Lauren and I went there with our baby twins who, you know, they can raise a ruckus. They were being pretty calm. But nevertheless, we walked in with our big double wide stroller and the babies and the people behind brunette couldn't have been more welcoming. That just always feels really good. And I sense that all up and down. Catskills area, the Hudson Valley, everywhere there. So, um, so I've been wanting to hit that diner. Last year in my Esquire Best News Restaurants list, number six, I think, was a place called the De Bruce mm-hmm. in Livingston, Maine. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. I've yeah, got to get in, down there at some point. It was almost accidental because I, um, Lauren and I went there as sort of a very brief baby moon uh, before the twins were born, and. Um, I had no uh, agenda on my mind. I was not uh, intentionally checking that out as a restaurant. But we ended up being blown away. We were just bowled over by the cooking. The first night, uh, Axel Thalkul is the chef. He made like just a kind of classic roast chicken and these Robichon-style mashed potatoes. Just really like a great welcome in, yeah. on a cold night. And then the second night, he, did, he, he rolled out a tasting menu. You know, and part of me kind of flinched. <laughs> yeah. kind of cringe like no 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 not a tasting menu yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not working right, right now right. I don't, I don't want a tasting hours, menu right? yeah. want but one. I mean we had nowhere to go Yeah, and we'd spent a bunch of the days um, walking around in snowshoes which <laughs> I'd never done and boy you work up a sweat doing that so I was pretty hungry yeah. and it turned out to be a remarkable kind of Noma inflected huh. foraged tasting menu wow. from the surrounding landscape. And does he, does he do both tasting and a la carte or did he pivot? Yeah. yeah so he does. You, it depends on which night. I think usually the average night he does a la carte and then maybe on weekend nights you can get the tasting menu. Yeah. And I would recommend it. It wasn't um, punitively long either. Mm-hmm. It was maybe five or six courses. So that's, that's totally manageable. Yeah. I mean, when they do the like 20... 25 courses or, or beyond I, I'm, I, I'm out mm. I mean my body can't take that I, at this I, point. I, I remember <laughs> I took my wife to Alinea a while back in like 09 for our anniversary because she's from Chicago and we were there visiting oh. her, her family and um, yeah that's where we met uh, 24 years ago next month if you wait 24 that. years ago we met our first date was 24 years that's ago beautiful. next month yeah good job thank you yeah it's the luckiest thing that ever happened to me but uh, 
I, my poor wife was like halfway through the meal. She's like, do you have a cot that I, yeah. you know, you could set up here next yeah. to the table? Like, yeah. I mean, she was, and you know, the thing is, I remember reading at some point around that era where he said they were very, very carefully making sure that all 24 courses still only added up to 800 calories. Oh. Um, but it's just... There's mental fatigue yeah. too, though. And, yeah. and, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of the, these... Wow, what's that big sound? Oh, I love that. Yeah, It's good for the podcast. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> I, love I feel like sometimes the, the chefs as auteurs expressing themselves or expressing themes in the culture through the tasting menu mm-hmm. don't take into consideration that we're just human beings out for dinner. You know? yeah. But sometimes they do. And when they do, it can be a remarkable experience. Like Adam X in the city was mm-hmm. my, my number two on my Esquire list. Yeah. It is yeah. a tasting menu. And it's in some ways this... this beautiful lyric poem to the foodways of Korea. Yeah. And it's also not too much. Mm-hmm. It's just not too much to eat. And there's a lot to be said for like that classic showbiz mantra of leave them wanting more, mm-hmm. you know, leave them guessing, leave them wanting more. Like I was still just a smidge hungry at the end of it. And that was perfect. Yeah. You know, so also because when the desserts come, you want to want the dessert. You yeah. want. You don't want to just endure it, or or like kind of take a couple spoonfuls, you know, spoonfuls of ice cream just just to be nice. Like you want to want it. Yeah. You know. So it was. It was. That was a great experience. I talked to a friend of mine recently uh, who's a pastry chef, and she she said that the hardest thing about her job is that she's cooking for people who are a full and b usually drunk. Yeah. And, and it makes it a really tough crowd to please. It's I really feel for the pastry chefs. Yeah. You know, so much talent out there. And particularly when they know there's a food media individual at the table or one or more and and inadvisably the chef or the restaurateur sort of bombard the table with food. By the time it gets to dessert, nobody wants the dessert. Yeah. And it's kind of cruel to the pastry chefs who are doing such remarkable work. Yeah. So yeah, it's. I mean, these are not real problems. Well, and, and <laughs> these are like compared to the problems and the, the miseries in the world, this is nothing. Which, which but it, but it, it is it is something. It, since I would imagine that chefs and people in the restaurant industry are listening, it's something to be mindful of in terms of making sure the experience is always pleasurable. A lot of places that are doing tasting menus obviously are aiming very high. They're mm-hmm. probably trying to get Michelin stars. They're trying to get the highest level of reviews and everything. So something to keep in mind is uh, what we, intake, <laughs> what we're capable of intaking from a caloric standpoint and the t- standpoint of time. It's I don't want to sit anywhere for five hours. No I can way. tell you that much. No way. I don't care how comfy your chair is. It's not, it's not, it's not doable. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think there's, I mean, it's one thing if you're just trying to kill one of your, one of your colleagues who's visiting you know, <laughs> yeah. your city for a night, right? Yeah. That's, but that's, that's a punitive kind of competitive macho, yeah. macho thing that that's, I'm not interested in. I don't understand that at all. I'm as unmacho as it gets. I don't, I don't, I never understood that. Yeah, I don't either. So, but, I, I, but, but actually I'm not, not to, to, uh, to, to take the, the steering wheel here, but it does, it does speak to my experience at Noma because I am somebody who goes into tasting menus with a sense of dread. Mm-hmm. And yet I have eaten Noma's tasting menu six times yeah. and have found, if I were to list my 10 favorite meals of all time, probably five of those Noma meals would be, yeah. would be in there. Yeah. They were that incredible. And, and that's what, I mean, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you is that my perspective and my entree into this um, business as a writer was entirely on the basis of a home cooking practice. 
Oh. And gardening and fermenting and you know oh, doing yeah, doing course. you know doing three covers a night you know me my yeah. wife and my son yeah and <laughs> um, and so I enjoy eating out and when it's good it's really good but restaurant meals also have the capacity to make me really mad <laughs> and and it happens more often than I would like <laughs> I like that we have to dine out more <laughs> yeah, we should. I want to see you again I mean I had a meal I'm not going to say where but I had a meal not too far from oh where, you'll say where by from the where, end of from this. where I live. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was the three of us, and it wasn't a ton of food, and it wasn't very good, and we dropped 200 bucks on it, you know? Yeah. And I was mad for, like, three days afterwards. Yeah. And so, to me, there's nothing more wonderful than being cooked for, and I'm, I say this as a person who cooks every day, just about, and loves to cook. But, man, do I love to be fed, you yeah. know? And, um, you know, I went to uh, I went to Besu with a friend the other night, because yeah. I was in the city, and it just had this big-ass bowl of um it was dan dan udon nabe so it was yeah. a nice little mashup yeah. and it was just medicine you know it was, yeah. it was a chilly day and it just it did everything it was supposed to do yeah you know and i got out of there for like 40 bucks and it was just perfect. yeah you know what i mean yeah and so uh, it's and not it's not really about the call like it's funny like not to keep going back to the esquire list but my number 10 i think was carnitas lonja mm -hmm. carnitas place in san antonio texas and i got out of there for about 12 bucks yeah yeah, yeah. 12 bucks no no and by the way i ordered three tacos and alejandro paredes the owner and chef of the place he looked at me he's like you sure you want three tacos i was like yeah man i mean like i'm from i'm from la man yeah. i just drove all the way from houston i guess and I, I love tacos it's all but he was making much bigger tacos that were almost like you could probably really really wolf down one mm -hmm. so it's and like I an open-faced burrito kind of yeah it was, it was tacos from a specific region of mexico he's from and they're they're like a lot bigger and 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 i'd order that and this chorizo quesadilla and some guacamole and, and seriously, I think it was 12 bucks, maybe 15 bucks. But, yeah. And it was, and I sat there on these picnic tables outside in the back, Carnitas Lona, and his family members are bringing me the food and talking with them, the sun shining. And I was like, this is, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. To me, that's as good as Atomix and, and uh, you know, the De Bruce that we talked about up mm -hmm. in, um, in the Catskills. Like, it's about how it makes you feel. Yeah. So it can be... Dominique Crenn doing an absolutely brilliant tasting menu or or super high-end French food at a, at a wine bar or it could be a dude making the best carnitas you've ever had. Absolutely. And that's actually all he made. He made the tortillas, the salsa, and the carnitas. Mm -hmm. And maybe the chorizo as well. So the restaurant was, it was almost like something in Japan where the chef has specialized completely in just one thing, like right. yakitori, right. you know, and, 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 um, that level of focus yielded unbelievable results because he was just studying it over and over and over to figure out how to do it the best yeah. he could. Yeah, I think that um, that kind of, it, maybe it's not simple because um, in Mexican food, as you go into great length, certainly with, um, you know, for mole and other things, but um, it, simple is not the word that is often, it shouldn't be applied to Mexican food as yeah. often as it is because there's a huge amount of subtlety and, and yeah. nuance and, and when it's done right. Um, but there's, the, the older I get and the more I cook and the more I think about the way, because I've now been doing this, paying attention for long enough to have had the whole, um, you know, to watch the whole molecular thing, yeah. watch that wave crest and break. And it really did, didn't it? It sure did. And then, <laughs> and then the, the tasting menu, which kind of overlapped with that because they yeah. kind of got along in a specific way. Um, but then that, you know, it's now so, you know, 2013 or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
and so, you know, the, the, the nice thing about getting older is that you see enough trends come and go yeah. and come back again in some ironically reinvented form. Yeah. Like the entire 80s, you know, um, food, um, music and clothing situation. Um, that I, I, I sort of invest less and less in each passing yeah. thing. And yeah. just, I, and I, so that model of somebody who specializes, that model of somebody who kind of digs down into the granular details of a particular thing and masters it, that's mm. increasingly appealing to me. Mm. And um, it's completely outside of trends like that. It's rooted in tradition. It's rooted in, in his family's culture and everything. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about the trend part. It's funny. Um, there's another book I, I've heard about that's coming out around the same time as mine, and, and it looks like a, a very fine book. One of the arguments of it, apparently, is that the food revolution is coming to a close. Hmm. I, I personally take issue with that. Yeah. I suspect that Eduardo Jordan and Mashama Bailey and Kwame Anwachi would take issue with it as well. For yeah, them, yeah. the revolution is just getting started. Yeah. You know, if you go to a restaurant like Mumbai in Oakland, it's a Cambodian restaurant. That's a that's a whole new revolution starting there. Really, what happens is one revolution fades and a new one starts. So we've yeah. seen that in music. I'm 52. I'm old enough to have seen, you know tiny glimmers of the 60s but then like yeah. the 70s the 80s the 90s all the different movements one overlapping the other one pushing out the other nirvana's never mind unseating michael jackson on the billboard charts yeah, and yeah. you know that's really what occurs the, the idea of revolution in gastronomy never ends it just takes on different forms and new voices rise to the fore, which is the way it should be. Yeah, it is. And I'm most interested, actually, in the new voices. I'm most interested yeah. in the demographic change, finally, that's happening on the... Uh, it, not uh, ha happening from the chef on down, happening, you know, uh, the, that finally the staff, not just on the line, not just front of house, but the actual owners and chefs are now looking more and more like our country looks. Oh, yeah. And, and there is now, thanks to all the... Um, all the chaos and misery of the of of the the shakeout from you know Batali Friedman and everyone else. Um, I think it's probably safer and more welcoming to work in a restaurant kitchen than it ever has been. Before. I I hope so. Yeah. I mean, there's so many restaurants that I'm sure there are some where that toxic culture remains intact. You know, it's going to be a long process to root it out. You know. Yeah, made harder by the fact that the toxic culture has taken, you know, it's pretty much metastasized in the country now. And so yeah. the, 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 anybody who has, anybody who wants to act in bad faith or be predatory has encouragement from the very highest levels. And that's right. going to make it a lot more pretty than twisted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm 50, so I was right there with you. And, and even though we didn't really catch the 60s, um, Certainly for me growing up, all the music I listened to until just about high school, late junior high, was the rock and roll of the 60s. Yeah. That was the defining, yeah. on, you know, all the radio and everything. Then I got into punk rock and found my way, you know, out of that and into other things. But You know what I feel a little bit is that the revolution of the last 15, 20 years in food in America, the, the Food Network, the explosion of interest, um, star chefs like David Chang... Um, etc. You know all the all these 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 figures who have essentially put food at the center of the cultural conversation and made it kind of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. It's like the fifties. Mm -hmm. It's like when rock and roll exploded. 
there was music before rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there was food before David Chang. Yeah. Right? But Momofuku sort of turned it into rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Right? And now what we're entering, it feels like to me, is like the 60s. It's like when things really get diverse and things really get psychedelicized and things really open up. At least that's my hope. Yeah. I don't think the conversation is getting less interesting. I think it's getting way more interesting. You know, I just attended the James Beard Awards. Um, or I was in Chicago for the James Beard yeah. Awards. I actually went out for steak and martinis during the actual ceremony with <laughs> some friends. Yeah. But um, it, like uh, yeah, it was a blast. And we watched it on our phones and nice. cheered for people like, you know, Kwame and Rita and Jody from Via Corota while we drank our martinis. Yeah, Which perfect. I highly recommend. It sounds like win-win. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like a 12-year-old boy. I get very distracted and it's hard for me to sit, like I said, sit in one place for a long time. So anyway, um, but it was so exciting. I mean, Mashama Bailey at the Gray in Savannah, Georgia, you know, winning a James Beard Award. I mean, this is a long time coming. I, I wrote about Mashama for the New York Times in probably... 2015, mm-hmm. um, but I first met her at Prune in 2011 when I was starting to work for the New York Times covering food, and I was writing a profile of Gabrielle Hamilton. Mm-hmm. If you Google that, you'll see the picture of Gabrielle and Mashama in the kitchen together nice. at Prune. Yeah. yeah, and I just loved her immediately, and you know everybody at Prune was telling me that Mashama was this absolutely astonishingly great cook and had a great future ahead. You know, and then when I saw that. Um, she and John O'Morrisano were taking this risk to open the gray in this, you know, converted Greyhound uh, terminal that, you know, formerly segregated in Savannah, Georgia. I mean, I thought, this is it. This, yeah. is, this is an amazing story and opportunity and could be one of the most important restaurants in America, which I think she's turned it into unquestionably. Yeah. So you see things like that, breakthroughs like that, and uh, it's thrilling. Yeah. It really is. It's like, and, and you know, I went to, I went to a... A lunch yesterday um, that was devoted to exploring, you know, the, the horrible narrative of uh, transatlantic slave trade through mm-hmm. through food. And you like these conversations are happening. Now. Yeah. We, I don't, you know, th- those that history has been around for decades, for centuries, and it's been told by people like Jessica B. Harris in books like High in the Hog. You know, it's yeah. a, an essential book if you want to understand American food. But it, a lot of that history and a lot of those um, insights hadn't really broken into the mainstream or broken into the James Beard Award sphere until like the last two or three years. Yeah, I think that's so. true. It happened in the art world, um, mm. which is where I spent my time up until about 10 years ago. Oh. And yeah, I, I came up as a painter, so I went to Oh school. man, I'm BFA sorry I didn't know that. That's so cool. It doesn't you know now, um, but it, it's uh, yeah. So I had I had an art career um, and and kind of accidentally ended up writing about food on the basis of this blog I started, which was entirely about my just dorky home cooking practice and oh. and but the 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 transformation there were a couple of transformations that took place in the art world when I was kind of in it thoroughly. Um, one of them is that's relevant to what you're talking about is that it became fully global and due in part to the biennials and the art fairs that became the dominant kind of um, economic paradigm where it stopped being individual brick and mortar galleries and it became big trade shows in, in cities all around the world. And as a result of that, local scenes in Sao Paulo and Mexico City and Shanghai and all these other places started to jump up and get noticed and curators got younger and much more diverse mm. and much more interested in 
kind of a post postmodern approach. Oh. I came up during the peak of postmodernism, and yeah, we didn't get along. Yeah. But, but then it <laughs> you and postmodernism? Not at all. Because <laughs> I, made, I made paintings that were meant to be visually pleasant and yeah. beautiful and oh, compelling wow. on that basis, very formal and, and painterly. Mm-hmm. And, Interesting. And it, I, just, I just caught shit from every direction in oh, school wow. because that's not what was, you know, the, the, you know, it was all the post-structuralist French philosophers who I still can't read without getting angry and, and a headache. It just doesn't work for me. Um, but I, I, think, I didn't even know what they were talking about. Well, that's the thing. It's opaque. It's, opaque. <laughs> it's the same thing as trying to read Art Forum from like 1992. It's deliberately opaque. It's language that is developed to exclude. Yeah. And, and I hate that. Yeah. Um, because right. language matters a lot to me. Of course. Um, and um, and it's, it's actually something else that uh, I, I was excited to talk to you about because um, the, I've talked to a few people who... Somebody's playing their radio on it? That's hilarious. Might be I there. hope this is all on the podcast because I love like found sounds. Yeah, it's like stuff. a John Cage podcast. <laughs> uh, the we audience... came to this beautiful wood paneled reading room so that we'd have quiet. Yeah. There's actually oh, if the fire alarm goes off, across she did the warn street, me. The, li- the head oh librarian warned me that that could. Just... We will just go deaf. Yeah, Great. it's so intense. Something to look forward to. <laughs> um, no, but I, so I've talked to people who write very much the way they talk, and so reading a book by them is like listening them. It's almost like a book on tape. Yeah. Um, and that's an admirable skill and one which I don't really possess, I don't think. Um, but you don't write like that at all. And I've now talked to you for, what, 20 minutes, so I, I have a little <laughs> bit of a sense of it. But you write, like, your language, one of the reasons it resonates so much with me is that, to me, you like, it, it's, I've read a couple of the blurbs that people have written and who, who, who've, um, who've called Hungry uh, poetic. Yeah. And to me... It is, but to me it's more, it's not so much that you write like a poet, it's that you write like someone who reads a lot of poetry. Oh, and, well that's what I am. That's and, what I've got here. I'm not trying to show off, like I'm, I'm actually writing a piece about five poets for a magazine. Uh, Saeed Jones, Dorothy Alasky, Tommy Pico. And um, I mean, I, all my friends know I carry around books of poetry in my shoulder bag everywhere I go. Yeah, yeah. Every, anywhere you see me, I have poetry with me. Yeah, yeah. And I, and, um, it's been a, a, a deep practice of mine, like almost a secular form of prayer for 11 years now. I mean, I was really into poetry when I was a teenager. Did you write it? Yeah, college I did a little bit, but then I stopped and just, uh, and there was a long lapse when I, I, I guess, I tried to stay away from her <laughs> and then I couldn't resist. Yeah. And then um, f- fell back in with poetry 11, 12, 13 years ago very deeply to the point where I buy four, five, six books of poetry a week. That's fantastic. I spend a lot of money on it. I actually yeah. will go to a bookstore any city I go to and buy what I what I flip to and like. Mm-hmm. And then um, I have this uh, daily poetry delivery service that I've had for about eleven years. Um, let's say I I like I like the Saeed Jones book Prelude to Bruise like a lot. And today actually I just flipped one. This is a poem called Skin Like Brick Dust. Mm-hmm. I opened to it. I loved it. I typed it up into my Gmail. Um, word for word. You know, the exact same spacings and punctuation and everything. <laughs> Privately to, to get a sense of the machinery and the music of the poems, mm-hmm. I do this. Like, really just to understand the poems better. It's almost like, let's say I heard a song I like and then I try to play the song on yeah. <laughs> guitar or piano. <laughs> this is hilarious. Somebody's yeah. flipping out. Then I share, when I, once I've typed it up into my Gmail, I share that poem with a group of friends. Hmm. 
Now, not not a big blast. I share it one one on one by one. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like a form of prayer or practice or something. That's interesting. Um, Pete Wells has gotten thousands of these poems. Yeah, lucky among man. many other people, Dominique Crenn. There's a bunch of people I share them with, um, and uh, it's just meant to be a gift, and it's meant to help me understand poetry better. Poetry is really important to me. Yeah, and and I guess I'm I'm actually like an autodidact with it. You know, oh, yeah. I studied it. In college, a little bit. In Were high you school. an English major, lit major? Yeah, you know. But I, I, I mean, my um, immersion in it, my marinating in it, is is more of a self-directed enterprise. So I just read tons of it, and yeah. I've typed up probably four or five thousand poems by hand. Wow. Ancient poems, contemporary poems, experimental poems, mainstream poems. I'm, my tastes are Catholic. I like all yeah. kinds of poems as long as they ring a bell with me, you yeah. know. And so um, I'm actually kind of um, um, a dumb guy in a way. Like, I'm, I'm serious. Like I'm just, I just um, blunder into things that interest me. I'm, I'm drawn to people who I find charismatic. I don't really have any uh, plan or literary strategy and so maybe what you see in in the book or in stuff I've written is a weird fusion of all the poetry I've read and my uh, just kind of accidental conversational ramblings yeah I think what it comes I hope it's readable I have no idea (laughs) what comes out to me is it's a beautiful synthesis um, I think uh, of journalistic clarity and storytelling because you've clearly had a lot of you know, training and practice at that, and so there's a there's a clear narrative. But for me, what 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 takes it to to the level that you know that I aspire to write at is is um, not just the communication of facts in a sequential order that reads cleanly and makes sense, um, but that there's a cadence to your sentences. There's a mm. rhythm to it. Mm. And there's a music to it, which I identify with because I spend a lot of time just on the rhythmic structure of my sentences. Yeah. Um, but then also, you just, you, um, you turn metaphors and similes with such, like, beautiful precision. Oh, and, thanks, And they, that's where this, this, this beautiful little left turn that you did not see coming, mm. um, and that, that, that is sort of purely poetic in that mm. way, um, where you, you were talking about gnawing on your regret like jerky or like after yeah. the workout, um, that your your abs felt like someone had used them as a bobsled. Yeah. Like, so you, you come up with these these images that are straight out of a poem, and yet they're always in the service of this very clear, very Thank you. Clear. I don't know where they come from. I mean, I'll show you. This is how I write, um, and I'm writing a piece right now. I mm-hmm. write by hand. Wow. So 90% of the book was written in longhand, just in these um, cheap notepads, yeah. notebooks I get at Staples or yeah. at Walgreens and stuff. Yeah. And, um, and part of that is just practical because I have four children. When mm-hmm. I started writing the book, I had two children, and that's a handful in and of itself. And sure. now I have four, and um, I can't. So I can't really do anything at home most of the time. There's always somebody hollering that yeah. they need something. Sure. And then um, I'm pretty much a hopeless addict when it comes to social media. So mm-hmm. if I'm near the phone or the <laughs> laptop, I end up checking Facebook a million times, Instagram a million times. Click, 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 like, 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 and yeah. I just squander hours. So I, I write by hand uh, as a form of self-preservation just to get away from all the devices. Like you got cafes or park benches or anywhere? 
Here. You I wrote here. here a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here in this reading room, public library down the street, public library in Hartsdale, public li- there's a public library in the West Village I went to a lot that I loved. And I would even go in the city without my laptop at all. Um, and um, bars, a lot of bars, but mm-hmm. not really drinking, just sitting there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and um, a lot of planes and trains because I travel a lot for sure. Esquire and my other freelance work. Planes... Can be amazing if it's a long flight, particularly if the Wi-Fi doesn't work at all. Well, you're stuck. You might be stuck for like, you know, six hours, and you just have to write something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of the book just poured out, just paper and ink. Um, and actually, that line about the bobsled came out that way. I don't know where it came from. Well, it comes. I mean, it comes you know, from- it's like any writing. You just sometimes you don't know. Uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know if some of this stuff made any sense because I was writing so much of it by hand in note, notebooks. I was deeply anxious about continuity. Mm-hmm. Like I would write a whole section in Norway or a whole section in Sydney or Oaxaca and I didn't know if it connected to the other sections. No, it does. It I, but I didn't know because I'd never put it all together. Yeah. And, and so um, my wife was terrified that I was going to lose the notebooks. Mm. Because I lose a lot. I, <laughs> jackets, umbrellas, you know, keys all the time. So I, I, if I, I would have been, it would have been a disaster if I'd lost the notebooks. Um, but at a certain point, I started typing them into the, I started typing everything into the laptop. And that becomes a form of revision, you know, so like the, the stuff that just seemed absurd or didn't make any sense. I just trimmed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... After a while, I started to see the connections and I thought this really kind of flows. And I also realized I'd written like 80,000 words, which I didn't know I'd written. I, mm-hmm. I had no word count on my note, notebook. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I, had, I thought it would more like 25 or 30,000 words. It turned out it had been like three or four times that amount. Wow. Um, and um, I guess that I really, this sounds weird, but the main thing I didn't want the book to be was boring. Mm-hmm. And That's I didn't, not weird at all. I didn't want it to be long. Because I, I read a lot, but I get really, I, I run aground in a lot of books. I like I hit a sandbar with a lot of books where it's just like, okay. I, I do just, too. It's I too long. Too. Like I wanted to, a lot of people have told me I read it in a day or I read it in two days. Brian Koppelman, who's one of the creators of Billions, told me he read it like on a plane. And that makes me so happy. Yeah. You know, just because um, then it can be a complete experience and, uh, you know, you're not, you're not, it's, it's not homework. I mean, to me, the worst kind of book is homework. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a kid, I don't like, you know, when I was a kid, like I read like Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. and Twilight Zone collections and beat poets just cause they were kind of raunchy and fun, you know, or, and yeah. like people like yeah. Frank O'Hara, a uh, New York school poet, because I thought it, it was fun. I thought it like was, uh, it had energy. That's what I'm always. I was the same way. I didn't. I couldn't be bothered to write my English paper, but I was reading, you know, Bukowski and Ginsburg and all yeah. that stuff. It's know? funny. Yeah, yeah, because you're like, well, this is a little bit um, illicit to mm-hmm. pick this up. I mean, particularly something like Henry Miller or something. Absolutely. Um, and who whose work hasn't really aged very well, and no. is is uh, is uh, deeply problematic in many ways. But it does have an energy that appeals to uh, you know a teenage boy. Absolutely. You know, so um, I mean, a huge, huge influence on me to a ridiculous degree to the point that I was actually just kind of mimicking him for a long time was Tom Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Um, also, somebody whose work you know some of it is 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 continually wonderful and some of it hasn't really aged well. It seems very dated and mm-hmm. 
tied to a certain sensibility in the 60s or 70s. But again, it has color, it has energy, it has range, it flows. You know like when you're watching, you're flipping around on TV and you and suddenly it's The Breakfast Club yeah. or it's Election or it's a Tarantino movie. Like there's certain movies that you cannot turn off. When mm-hmm. Even you're midway through, like almost famous. I mean, is that a great work of art? I don't really know. But I know that when I'm flipping around and I see Almost Famous, I can't stop watching it. Yeah. And it's the same to me with like Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test mm-hmm. by Tom Wolfe. If you pick it up, you're going to start reading a few pages because it's just fun and flows and it kind of grabs you. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do that. I really wanted to do that. I wanted the kind of, and that's why it doesn't have, the book Hungry doesn't have an introduction mm-hmm. because I, I find that an introduction is almost like a big Berlin wall between you and the reader. Reader comes up to the book, and the first 20 pages consist of, I'm going to clear my throat and explain to you why I wrote this book. I want to explain to you why I wrote the fucking book. Here's the book. Let's go. Get on the sled. Let's go. Let's let's start riding. Totally. I, I was like, okay, I start on a beach. I'm passed out on a beach. I'm exhausted, and a man is waving a flashlight in my eyes. Totally true. That's what happened, and mm-hmm. I thought, let's just start there. Well, people, it's the way movies begin. Like you said, yeah. I mean, nobody, no movie starts with a 10-minute intro. Right. Well, here's why we made the movie. Like, like um, it's, you know, it's this term in medias race, which means in the yeah. middle of the action. You know, yeah. uh, somebody, somebody brought that up in college, and I guess it stuck with me. And it seemed, um, and I'll get real pretentious here, but the opening is actually meant to be also a little echo of Dante's Divine Comedy. Hmm. The reason the book begins with the Italian opening of Dante's Divine Comedy is because... That, that whole great, great work of Western literature can be read as a metaphor for a midlife crisis. Totally. Yeah. You well, know, it's, the it's, path's diverging right there at the outset. Exactly. Nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita. The beginning he's saying, I found myself in the middle of a dark wood and I didn't know the way out. Which a lot of us find ourselves at a certain age in our lives. And uh, it's totally. a cliche, I admit it, but it's also true. We all go through this, like, what the hell is my life? I was completely lost. And, 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 and then, so I found myself, you know, on a beach in Mexico yeah. in a similar circumstance. So, um, you know, I, I told my editor at, uh, at Tim Dugan Books, who's Tim Dugan, I was like, you know, it's, it's this egregiously uh, pompous to begin with Dante in Italian, you know, because essentially, I mean, it's like an inside joke, sure. you know, it's not supposed to be that pretentious. Um, it was either that or Bruce Springsteen's Hungry Hard. So, like, <laughs> um, I think it's a weird book to explain. Like a lot of times when I ex- try to explain it to people, I'm like, well, it's about this guy, Rene Redzepi, who's probably the most influential chef of our time. He's like the Bob Dylan circa 1967 or yeah. Steve Jobs in the 80s or, you know, Beyonce, Jay-Z, like somebody of just incredible cultural sway. Yeah, it's a huge um, gravitational pull. Yeah, and it's about my midlife crisis, and it's about all the, and my divorce, and my finding love with someone later, and it's about uh, all these people who are part of the Noma orbit, and just Renee's friends. So Danny Bowen, uh, Kylie Kwong, Dave Chang, Rosio Sanchez, uh, Roddy Sloan up in Norway, Malcolm Livingston. And when I explain to people, like, okay, <laughs> it's like they don't, it's like, well, how the hell does that work? I mean, it is difficult to explain. So it's sort of like, 
Y'all just have to read it. Yeah. You know, like, because I think you'll dig it and um, well, it's, it makes sense when you're reading but it. But it's like you're either on the bus or off the bus, right? And so that bur- that was all the crew of the bus during that period. Yeah. It was a pivotal period. Yeah, exactly. When, when, he, when he shut down Noma 1 and yeah. did, did the pop-ups yeah. and opened Noma 2. So it was kind of the, the main inflection point on his of his career. Well, that's that was to me the... That's, that's what I said to Renee to persuade him to... to participate or collaborate. I mean, it's my byline on the book. It's not Renee's. It's, that's the other thing is some people in the food world assume it's a cookbook or it's mm-hmm. a collaboration. No, it's a, you know, it's narrative, it's literary journalism sort of yeah. about this yeah, yeah. figure. And, um, you know, I told Renee, you're going into the terror dome. You're, you're going into the central drama probably of your professional career, blowing up the original Noma instead of coasting just at the moment when it's revered around the world, copied around the world, yeah. creating a new one, it's gonna be a nightmare, you know it. There's gonna be all sorts of problems you don't foresee. You're doing a pop-up in Australia, doing a pop-up in Mexico. Now, I didn't make it to the Japan one, alas, mm-hmm. but um, you know, you're also starting this whole wild food initiative in Copenhagen. You have three children, you have this wife you're d- deeply devoted to, who's got her own cookbook coming yeah, out. Yeah, she's you a know, force in and of herself. You, know, you, you have a network that, uh, that surra- crosses the globe, all these chefs you're friends with. He's, he's, you know, how are you going to do this? And how are you going to chronicle it, Renee? Because when it's over, it's over. Yeah. There will be no record of it. And it's like... No one will, I mean, Noma Mexico will just become a kind of phantom. This, this, what may arguably be, have been the, the great meal of our time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, will be lost. And, you know, and of course I can't recreate the flavors in the book, but I can recreate the experience that led up to it, which, you know, if you read the book, you saw like Renee pretty much almost had a nervous breakdown yeah. trying to make this thing happen. Yeah, and yeah. I was there. I was just next to him along in the van a lot of the time. I mean, I, did, I wasn't in Mexico the entire time they did these research trips because I have children and I have a job at Esquire. Sure. But he would sort of text me and say, look, we're going to be in Merida in a few days or we're going to be in Oaxaca in a few days. And it's going to, you know, really interesting stuff's going to go down. We're going to be really d- digging deep into the um, mole and uh, you know I learned how to buy really cheap flights you know on kayak and speed I'd find really cheap flights and just go and you know move the chess pieces around in, involving my parenting and and, uh, right, and make it happen. deadlines and make it and you know and, and and I just lucked into some pretty amazing things so yeah, it wasn't all luck I mean you were pre- you, pre- you had prepared by making you'd made your own luck by the career that you'd had leading up to it clearly right I mean yeah, you know you have to be there. You yeah. know, if you're this kind of reporter, uh, which I've been for 30 years, you know you you got to be there and you yeah. can't say no. There were a couple cities in Mexico I didn't get to tag along through and I I will be forever aching about that because yeah. some cool cool stuff happened. Um but um you know, I was I I I'm I'm really into documentaries like so many of us are and yeah. and like I thought a lot about Don't Look Back the D.A. Pennebaker documentary, yeah. Bob Dylan. I thought about When We Were Kings, about Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Um, all these documentaries, again, also films that I could watch over and over and over that captured monumental cu- cultural figures at the moment of impact, at the moment of creative uh, supernova. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and 
I thought I have it. This is it. This is this is the one. Yeah, Renee yeah. is that person, sure did, and yeah. and if I don't do it, no one will. Yeah, or someone else will. Right. But like, but they won't do it as well. Uh, no, I'm, a lot of people could have done it done it as well or way better. It's just that you know I, I mean a lot of people. But like at one point I was I was in uh, Copenhagen for the last day of Noma, mm-hmm. uh, the original Noma, and I was in the kitchen and talking to Renee, talking to Malcolm Livingston, you know, hanging out with everybody. Noticed that Mads Refslund had come in from New York, who was one of the original founders of Noma. It was all happening. It was a very exciting scene. It was almost like the Super Bowl. They doused Renee in champagne. When it was, and, you know, Jonathan Gold was there hmm. from the Los Angeles Times. My, along with Ruth, Ruth Reichel, one of my ultimate heroes. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles, Ruth, Los Angeles, Ruth, and... Jonathan really like changed my life. Yeah. Um, and I was moved because I love his writing so much and I was terrified because yeah. I thought, is, is Jay Gold writing a Noma book, you know, okay. <laughs> or a Noma article? Cause it will be better. Huh. I mean, like he was the, he was the greatest, Yeah. you know? So, um, I don't really know. I mean, Pete Wells as well. I, there's certain people that you can't really compete with. They just have this immense talent. Well, the good news so. is you don't necessarily have to. I mean, I've always thought that success is not a zero-sum game. And, and, and that, um, I mean, it was one of the things I really appreciated. You, without even having met me, um, you know, connected me with Kevin at Esquire. And, and that was very generous. And, and, you know, I think talent is its own reward when it comes to... Um, making the world a richer and better place. Yeah. And, and talent is our way forward. I mean, kind of in the way something you said a minute ago about, um, it seems to me one of the through lines of the book, which you, which you talk about sort of openly, is that one of the ways you navigated your midlife crisis was by saying yes to yes. a lot of things that you might Absolutely. otherwise have had doubts about. Yes. Or you just said, fuck it, I'm doing this. Because I have nothing else to do. I don't know what I'm doing. It's very similar in concept to the way I navigated mine, which um, mercifully did not involve any adultery or red sports cars but um, <laughs> but it was it was the career change when the art world you know when the economy collapsed and my mm. art career kind of vanished into thin air and yet I still had a daily studio practice because I had been making money and um, my I found my way forward as a writer by just saying yes to anybody who was interested yeah. in having me write something right. for them and over time that coalesced into something with some momentum and, and access to you know higher levels and and so that really resonated with me um, I was I was emailing with my friend Omar Mamoun. He he contributes to Esquire sometimes. He's a food writer in San Francisco, and he had an opportunity to go to Iceland. and And he's like, "Should I go?" And I was like, "Man, go. Just say yes." Because the thing, even if you don't have an assignment right now, even if you don't have a formal assignment, you will come back with great material, and then you can convert it into an assignment. Mm-hmm. Maybe you write something for a high paying magazine. Maybe you don't. Then maybe you do something for. Um, you know, one of these incredible indie food magazines that are coming up, the, the payday might be less. But um, you'll be able to use this material in, in a beautiful way and tell a story. Like, it, it's almost always better to say yes. I mean, uh, the, the two times that, like, I almost said no to Rene Redzepi for this initial meeting. I was really just in a foul mood, as mm-hmm. I explained in the book. And... Um, I almost said no to John Kwan, the John Kwan lunch at uh, Le Bernardin that Eric Repair had, which ended up being an article about John Kwan that I did for T Magazine at the New York Times. And that story essentially led David Gelb and the team at Chef's Table to make a Chef's Table episode about her. 
And the beauty of that is that John Kwan's message and mission can be spread outward to a lot more people. I mean, there is nothing I hear about more that I've ever written than the John Kwan story. People stop me on the street. A guy asked for a selfie in Grand Central with me. I mean, I'm like, I'm just the guy who was there, okay? I'm not like that. But it's it's moving to me that... um, John Kwan reached a larger audience with that. Maybe people are thinking about going vegan, maybe about people thinking about cooking differently, people thinking about exploring Buddhism, thinking, people thinking just about being gentle with the world we occupy, you yeah. know? Like, you think, okay, th- I did a mitzvah here, even taking part in this, you know? Yeah. Um, even being a you know, minor player in this is, is something positive contributed to the world. And I almost said no in the beginning because I was busy. Yeah. Like Eric Repaired emailed me, said, why don't you come to this lunch at La Bernardin? I mean, who wouldn't want to? But like, you know, when you're overloaded with deadlines. Oh, completely, yeah. I was in New York Times. Sometimes I had four stories that I was working on. I had phone interviews. I had staff meetings. I, I couldn't just leave to go yeah. to a lunch. Yeah, you know, let alone in, Iceland. Well, yeah, yeah, or 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 Mexico originally with Renee. So like, but then sometimes you break away. I mean, I, I felt this yesterday with the um, the lunch at Craft uh, because I, I I almost I almost backed out because I was just so overwhelmed with deadlines and stuff and parenting the kids and all four kids were with me last night. So that meant you know I'm making dinner. Yeah, I'm I'm dealing with in the morning. I mean, this is tedious, but this is reality. The reality is like my morning is, you know, Lauren and I are making bottles for the babies. We're changing the babies. We're making, I'm making breakfast for Lauren a lot of times and for Margo and Toby, my older kids. Mm-hmm. I'm making their school lunches. Mm-hmm. And they're teenagers now? Yeah, they're yeah. both teenagers. I'm driving them up the hill here to school, mm-hmm. driving back, making sure Lauren gets the time she needs to get ready to get on the train. I mean, it's a, it's a frenzy. So sometimes when nine o'clock rolls around and everyone's at school or napping or on the train, I just want to collapse. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go into the city for a lunch. Yeah. Um, but uh, usually if you dust yourself off and go do it, you're going to learn something and maybe sometimes be changed by that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the thing that I miss about the city. And, and when I was deep in my book, I, I switched from saying yes to everything to saying no to everything. Cause mm. I just was, I really, you know, and that was like, like yours. I mean, it was a three year process and I was yeah. deep in it and I wow. really lived and breathed it for a while. And, and, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. Um, but I do now wish that I kept my antennae tuned a little more yeah. um, and not become quite such a hermit. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 should such a thing happen again, I'm going to make an effort to be a little, keep my head up a little higher. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, because I did, I think I did sort of miss out on some stuff just by saying, go away, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm working. Uh, I mean, I, in terms of uh, Noma and stuff, I think it's, there's almost something karmic about the way Renee helps people. Renee really stands up for people and he really prov- provides opportunity for people. And, I'll, you know, he, he's incredible advocate for women, people of color in his kitchen, promoting them, giving them real positions of power and ownership in Noma. Yeah. In the case of Ali Sanko, who's a, Ali Sanko is a Gambian immigrant who's a, um, you know, started as a dishwasher at Noma. And now he's one of the partners in the restaurant. Um, something Renee's 
just deeply believes in. And I, I mean, I, I, I shy away from getting too deep into hero worship here mm-hmm. because like, I know that, that no one's perfect and, and, and people don't, don't want to hear me just sound the trumpet for the guy, but he does a lot of good for people. Sure. No, I remember, um, you know, it was when one of the abominable laws that passed in this country on, or some, you know, just one of the many dismal milestones we've passed in the immigration front mm. in the last two years. And he posted very deliberately on Instagram a picture of the kitchen yeah. talking about all the immigrants, yeah. right? All the different ethnicities and races and genders yeah. and everything that he has, you know, working together to make, you know, some of the most refined and exquisite food the, on the planet. Yeah, it's a global kitchen. It's yeah. not It's not a bunch of blonde Viking guys. No. It is, it, well, and it, he isn't either, which you, he isn't which you either. talk about too. I mean, he, he came in through the back door as, you know. Yeah, he's an, he's an immigrant himself. I mean, the... Um, or his father is, uh, yeah. to, be, to be clear. But, but um, you know, recently when there was the horrible mass shooting uh, at, at the mosque in New Zealand, yeah. you know... Um, yeah, you, I was going to say you have to specify because we have one every other I day. Um, Rene posted a picture of um, different Muslim folks who work in the kitchen, yeah, know, including that. Ali Sanko, mm-hmm. who I just mentioned. You know, and he said, like, you know, here's some of the beautiful... Uh, Muslim people who work at Noma, and and I, it's like, you know, that's his that's his story. His father um, read the Quran to Renee and his twin brother when they were when they were boys growing up. That was like their bedside reading, um, and he dealt with a lot of bigotry and uh, exclusion when he was coming up in um, Denmark because he was seen as an outsider. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's a misperception I think a lot of people have. Even some, some big food writers I've talked to who've never eaten at Noma. They've never met Rene. They don't necessarily know his story. They just know they're sick of all the press he gets. And I understand that. I mean, it becomes a little monotonous sometimes when certain people become stars and they, they appear to be hogging the spotlight. Yeah. I don't think that's what he's doing, but I get yeah. it. You know, um, What I often try to encourage those folks to do is... is to eat at Noma, if you if any opportunity presents itself, yeah. to get to know Rene and his story, which is probably going to surprise you, it's a lot different than you think. Yeah. Um, the, as I say in the book, the emphasis is not on the Nordic; it's on the new. Yeah. He was creating a new Nordic, not celebrating the traditions of Nordic cooking, but actually wiping the slate and on that tabula rasa creating an entire new way of thinking about food and and the products of Scandinavia yeah in you know through his own vantage point which is actually connected more to eastern europe and to macedonia his father came is an albanian ethnically albanian guy who grew up in macedonia yeah. and rene spent a lot of the summers there um in very rural agricultural setting you know milking cows and Forging for mushrooms and things like that. Yeah. And that sensibility is what informed what he did at Noma. So, um, you know, there's sometimes a, a misunderstanding of that. I, I, I do think, though, you know, it's, I was at Entertainment Weekly magazine for about a decade in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I used to cover music and indie film. And the editor of Entertainment Weekly uh, was a guy named uh, Jim Seymour. Mm-hmm. And... Um, very sort of old school timing guy, kind of preppy uh, Ivy League guy who ran Entertainment Weekly, and we were like a you know the rabble, like the young people he brought in, and, yeah. and he sort of tried to keep us under control. And there were a lot of brilliant, brilliant thinkers and writers there, 
Um, and I remember at one point saying, like, why the hell do we keep putting Julia Roberts on the cover? <laughs> and like, really? Another Bruce Willis cover? Like, what's with the, you know, seriously, it's boring. Why don't we put Beck on the cover, you mm-hmm. know? Um, Is it just because they sell magazines? He said, Jeff, stars are stars. Yeah. It was like, and I know this sounds like a tautology. It's actually a really profound thing. It's like there are some people who, whose impact and whose celebrity glow... Only, that only increases. Yeah. The, in, the public interest in them only grows for whatever mysterious reasons. It doesn't wane. Yeah. There might be periods at which people are less interested in David Bowie than usual, maybe during the tin machine phase. Yeah. But ultimately, David Bowie was an object of consummate fascination and brilliance you know yeah, and, as and testified by the publicly mu- beatified as yeah well like the, the whole uh, Bowie is or whatever it was called the exhibition at the Fisher oh, sure. Museum you yeah. know yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, such a rich artist in terms of what he contributed in music in video in art in fashion etc sometimes those people come along and they uh <clears throat> You can try to ignore it. You can try to dismiss it. You can say, you know, I'm sick of hearing about Noma, but Rene Redzepi is one of those people. Yeah, yeah, no and, 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 you know, like I brought my friend Ian Daly to Noma at one point. He's not the person in the first meal in the book. <laughs> Grant Gold, who's oh, man. the comics. I, I, love, I love the way you name check him like 40 times. Well, that's, his, like, that's his real name. No, I get it. No, but you just make a point of leaning on it. <laughs> well, it sounds, like, it sounds, it's a musicality to it. Yeah. He's a lovely guy. I mean, yeah. I, I, I hope he's okay with it. I mean, I certainly don't mean to make fun of him or something. It was just such a funny scene. Well, we've all had those jet lag induced comas that we made. Us yeah, like, I mean, he's only things. human, you yeah. know, but, but I mean, Bad it's funny. Enough. How many people have told me their favorite thing in the book is the Grant Gold scene, yeah. which intentionally goes on too long. Yeah. Like, I wanted to draw it out. No, I get that. It becomes like a vaudeville thing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he's still not here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, later, my friend Ian uh, Daly went with me. This was a, at a point where I, I was, you know, I was paying for, all my Noma meals, I paid my own way to go there yeah. and everything. So um, it was not the Times or Esquire subsidizing it. Um, so Ian was working for a, a major technology company at the time and had a little more bank than I did. And so I was sort of like, maybe if you pay for this, I'll help us get in. And you know, maybe you could help with Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And you get to eat at Noma, which bragging rights for your friends back in California. Totally, yeah. And uh, plus, I love the guy and love hanging out with him. So... Ian is, um, he has a classic um, Irish skepticism, Mm -hmm. shall we say, about like, you know, anything too fancy, particularly in the food world. So he was going into this Noma thing with a little bit of a wary eye. Like, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I like to see what it is, but I doubt I'm actually going to enjoy the food. Mm -hmm. This guy really hates tasting menus. Mm -hmm. Like, in his bones. Yeah. And two, three bites in, he looked at me like he was on acid. You know, he was like, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I fucking get it. Yeah, wow, yeah. holy cow. Like, you know, I was like, it's something else. See, Ian, this is something else. Like, the first thing we got when I went with Ian, because the menu constantly changes, yeah. was just a bowl of fruit. I think it was late summer, maybe early fall, but it was like berries and stuff like that. And some were, f- maybe not frozen, but chilled. Some were warmer. Some were had been marinated and or like 
basted in different fermented fermented sauces and stuff. Some had been kind of pickled mm-hmm. and they were just arrayed on this ice and each bite was a supernova of flavor and pleasure. The yeah. temperature of each bite was just perfect. And, um, you know, you could say, whatever, it's just fruit. You had to have this experience. It was sure. not just fruit. Somehow it looked just like fruit, but it had been transformed into magic. Yeah. And, I, and it sounds crazy, but you have to go there to see what I'm talking about. And, and um, you know, he was like, oh, my God. This is like nothing I've ever eaten in my life. I mean, radically delicious, but weirdly delicious. Like a music you've never heard before. Like yeah. songs you've never heard before. Like microtones in between the usual yeah, tones. Yeah, yeah. And every now and then, something I really didn't like. Mm-hmm. Which I also liked. I liked that Noma would throw you a curveball. No, they would say they loved it, but I'd be like, ooh, that yeah. was weird. Well, like taking risks right out in the open. Right? Yeah, like they had this one thing that was basically like a, a gummy. Mm-hmm. Um that was like jet black and it was made out of black garlic, you know, mm-hmm. which as you know, is like a, a, an aged fermented garlic and a deep funky flavor, like a depth charge of funk. Yeah. And um, they made a gummy out of it that I feel like was in the shape of a leaf and you kind of like peeled off pieces of it. I, I really didn't not, like not it. No, I really was like gagged, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But then people, <laughs> other people would tell me that was their absolute favorite Noma dish of all time. The black garlic gummy. Hmm. You know, okay. Yeah. I mean, that said, I remember it. Yeah. I've had entire tasting menus, and I don't remember a single dish I had. So uh, the Noma dishes really stand out. They also don't, like, the plating is original. You know, Renee is savvy of, enough not to do the normal whooshes and dots and swirls and little ant hills of, yeah. you know, like, like, like frozen dust that you you know what I mean like oh, yeah. the pastry chefs who are still doing the things that look like clumps of dirt mm-hmm. but are actually chocolate powder so yeah. stop yeah. like we're done with that yeah. okay it's like it's chocolate and olive soil so yeah I, it's never good <laughs> it's never no one actually wants that well it's because it's, it's, <laughs> it's like it's like halva which is something I've always hated which just like wicks all the saliva out of your mouth in, in, in a tenth of a second and ruins whatever else you're eating <laughs> yeah um, but they would do some crazy desserts too. I remember the maybe the first time I went, Rocio Sanchez was still the pastry chef before she left, and then was replaced by Malcolm Livingston. But she went on to do you know Sanchez and stuff, do this, the best tacos in Europe. Yeah. And but she had a thing that was just like a huge chicharron, mm-hmm. and I mean it was like it was like the side of a pig, like this the, the big flap of crispy pigskin, just coated in chocolate. Mm. It was amazing. It was weird, though. It wasn't what you expect at Noma. Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of the stuff at Noma is more primal than you'd expect. It's not tweezer food all the time. Like, like there's one thing they had once that was just basically this huge heap of incredible langoustines. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of broiled very quickly so that they were soft and melty and velvety and basted with this ferment, like a butter that also had a garum in it, like some sort of fermented meat sauce thing. I mean, they do yeah. thousands of ferments, so yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. But the butter, the richness of that, the funky flavor with the langoustine meat. Oh, and then the, and there are no utensils. So they just put a heap of that down. Just eat them with your and hands. Just, yeah, just eat yeah, it with your right. hands. Too. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely primal. It yeah. was like um, almost prehistoric in yeah. its pleasure. So when I tell people about that, they're like, really, that's Noma? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, that's not, it's not what, it's not. I know I keep saying this. But it's not what you think. But, but, and that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's one of the things 
like for me that when food gets to I mean, food goes so many places, but the biological necessity of it places it in a different sphere than the rest of human culture in a certain mm-hmm. way. You could argue that a lot of culture is spiritually necessary, but that's different from staying alive. Yeah. And um, so the thing is, like, in certain ways, when food is done right, um, and when it's, you know, and, and when, certainly when wine is done right, there's, there's a, and leaving aside any kind of weird fetishistic connections, um, but there is that primality. There's, there's a fine line between eating a meal and fucking sometimes. You yeah. know? There's, there's just in terms of what it's doing to your body yeah. in the moment sure. that it's happening. You're like, yeah. I need this more than I, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm enjoying the shit out of this. Like at yeah. a level that right. really nothing else. You except, can't tear me away. Exactly. And, <laughs> and the thing is, it's, it, that it sort of gets to something I wanted to ask you about is, is how and at what point because um, music and food definitely overlap in a lot of ways, um, not least of which is the ephemerality of it. And you talk mm. about how you can sure you can take pictures of meals and you can write down the recipe, but it's not the same as recording a concert. Mm-hmm. And even then, recording a concert's not like being at a concert. Yeah. So, how is it that you um, was there a particular way that you um, ended up kind of prioritizing food coverage over, say, music and other culture? I mean, I know you write oh. about other things and you profile people and yeah, uh, but. Um, how is it like is there some particular path that the that you took to get to where you did where you are with food yeah it was kind of accidental I mean there used to be a sort of euphoria that would overtake me that was almost religious with music when I was a teenager Mm -hmm. and in my 20s I see it in my daughter Margot who's a singer songwriter herself and actually has already recorded an album wow yeah did you play an instrument or you just yeah I played piano I sang actually <laughs> in a in a garage band and um but you know I saw, I saw the clash when I was 14 at the Hollywood Palladium I saw mm. REM the Dream Syndicate Talking Heads really in talking as you might have seen every yeah. uh, section of the book is named after a Talking Heads song mm-hmm. um and I used to be almost levitated I actually grew up in the church I grew up very religious Oh wow yeah what what denomination well, it was technically Presbyterian, but it was really much more kind of 80s evangelical thing. Oh, wow. Um, in that, that, Yeah, in Southern California. That's not really, that's not where I'm at now. Don't worry. No. But that's what I grew up with. I, you know, I know. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and so uh, a certain kind of um, possession or mm-hmm. like almost like spiritual euphoria that yeah, seems... Like a transport that happened. Yeah. Yeah. That, that started to happen with me with music. Mm-hmm. Certainly happened when I saw the clash. The yeah. English beat opened up. I had when I left that show. I had to, I could actually wring my shirt, and the huh. and the, the sweat would yeah. come out. It, it was like so, me, me with minor threat when I was also. Oh wow! At the minor in Boston. Yeah. I, I seek out videos on YouTube of Fugazi just to just to go nuts. Yeah. On my own, dancing to them like you know. Oh wait! Oh wait! Oh wait! Oh wait! Anyway, so. Um, you know, I got into writing about music just because I like loved it. I'm not really some intellectual. I know there's a lot of people who write about music from that standpoint, but I'm just kind of. Uh, it's a visceral appreciation. Yeah, I'm an accolade. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a disciple, and um, it started to fade. It just started to fade. You get older, and bands come along you don't really get. I would tell people like, "Yeah, I love a lot of new bands. I love Arcade Fire and the White Stripes, and they're like, yo, those bands are like." 15 years old. That, that's, class, that's classic rock. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I do, I do listen to a lot of new bands um, a lot, particularly like that I listen to through my daughter, like this band Dream Wife, Blew mm-hmm. Me Away. 
lemon twigs, car seat headdress. Um, but anyway, it is kind of coupled with the, the sagging sadness of the midlife crisis, but music did nothing for me anymore. Even the stuff I used to like, like, like Exile on Main Street by the Stones, I'd put on Loving Cup, which may be my favorite song of all time, and it would just do nothing for me. Hmm. I would just sit there inert. Yeah. And it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. You know, to think that you can't be transported anymore by the thing you love more than anything. Yeah. So, um, I also noticed that these acts were coming around like Eminem that I'm just being honest I know I sound like an old dad here but I didn't get it I was like why is he so mad at everyone like why is he so mad at his mom and stuff you know like I just didn't didn't like it you know um whole lot of hip-hop I love but I for some reason with Eminem I just didn't get it and mm -hmm. and and, and uh, around around those days it was entertainment weekly then I went to details and um uh my editor at details who lives near me here um Dan Perez, he sent me to cover a Jonas Brothers concert. Hmm. And uh, I sat there in Madison Square Garden, surrounded by all these kids cheering for the Jonas Brothers, and I was like, okay, we're done. I'm out. Hmm. I, got, I just, I just and why am I here? Yeah. I'm embarrassed. You can't even do it ironically. It wasn't bad, by the way. Yeah. They weren't a bad band. It was just like, this is not for me. I'm mm -hmm. not, this is silly to even be here. Yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, um, all that I seemed to be obsessed with was food. Now that had always been the case when I was a kid in LA, like I said, Jonathan Gold and Ruth Reichold like changed my life, mm -hmm. all the incredible food at our fingertips in Los Angeles, all mm -hmm. the different communities. So you were reading them even as a Oh yeah, as a teenager. Yeah. 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 And my best friend in high school wound up being a chef for a while and then later worked for William Sonoma. We were like the the original <laughs> we're like OG foodies yeah. like at 16, 17 going around Los Angeles trying to very, find the very best Thai food the very best burritos wow, I mean we were obsessed yeah, okay. oh yeah. yeah like before shows after shows is what we did and largely what we what we read we you know there's before the internet yeah I mean we did how else are we going to find out I mean we'd read in the LA Weekly or the LA Times or something or, or just talk to people um but I started, you know, obviously food was, was becoming super central to uh, the cultural conversation in America. And it seemed to be what I was always thinking about. And um, my editor at Details, one of my two editors was Pete Wells. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So that's actually the Rosetta Stone of this whole thing. It's just luck. It's just fortuitous. I happen to be at Details. I happen to do a lot of stories with Pete Wells. He's an incredible editor, by the way. Sure. And he's a total gentleman. He's yeah. a sweetheart. You might not believe that from reading this stuff, no, but he's he, a really kind guy. Oh, no, I believe he, He's a very, he's a blast. He's so funny to hang out with and stuff. And we, we actually went to Momofuku Noodle Bar really early when it opened. We, I mean, I wasn't, he had a column of food and wine. I wasn't whining about food really in any intentional way. And um, Pete was like, you got to check this place out. This guy, Dave Chang, is the fucking future. Mm. This is some of the most incredible food I ever had. We went there and I... I went there like three in the afternoon, as I remember, at some weird hour, and had the iconic pork buns, had the asparagus with like miso and the poached egg, and I mean, I was like, um, okay, what is this? Who is this? This is the most delicious stuff I've ever had, you know? Like, yeah. so I found myself getting excited yeah. about food in the way I used to about music. It was happening mm -hmm. again. Like, I was getting that euphoria again like a contact high and dreaming of Momofuku. I'm dreaming of it and I want to go back. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, certain point, Pete got a job 
at the New York Times to be the dining editor, dining section editor, food editor, now it would be. Actually, he told me the news when we were at Momofuku Sambar, mm. which had recently opened. It, was, it hadn't evolved into what it is now, but it, it just opened. And true story, Pete like took a phone call, his yeah. cell phone rang and he went outside. He's a very polite person. He would never do that. So when he came back, I said to him, you got a job offer, didn't you? He's like, well, how do you know that? And I was like, because you don't do that. You don't, I mean, you're not rude. You don't ever take calls when you're having a meal with someone. Yeah. He's like, well, I've been offered to be the food editor of the New York Times. Uh-huh. Like, you what? Like, I was like, what are you talking about? That, that's the most amazing job I've ever heard of. Yeah. Like, you're going to do that job? He's like, yeah. So, I mean, I was really sad because he was such a great editor. My other editor was Jessica Lustig, who's now at the New York Times Magazine. She was an equally incredible editor. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, I mean, it took a couple of years. It's not like Pete just poached me. Um, yeah. Eventually, Pete wanted someone to come in and do profiles, do a lot of profiles for the, for the food section. Um, at that time, it was, there were a lot of reviews. There were a lot of recipes. There were trend pieces. There, there wasn't quite that much emphasis on profiles, at least as I remember it. And that's sort of my specialty is writing yeah. about people. Yeah. So he brought me in to write about uh, chefs. And from there, the ride began. But it was just kind of an accident. Um, so uh, I was at the Times for six years. Yeah, and now I'm a food writer. Yeah, and it's—I it, mean, uh, people are like, "Oh, wow, man! You, how long have you been a food writer?" It actually hasn't been that long. It, It's—it's just—it's—it's it's weird that how it happened. Well, I think also, like you were talking about a while back, you know, in the in the age of um, in the age of social media, a lot of us only have careers that are a few years old because yeah. most people know us now through that. Yeah, and if you weren't big on Instagram until you know a few years ago, nobody knows who that you know, know. just the number of eyeballs on your whatever you did. Yeah, it's just that much smaller. Yeah. and now it's like the, the ecosystem is where it is, and a lot of that is just ancient history. I know it's so true. How would you know any of this about anybody? How would oh, you know it's so that, true. Like, so know? true. I mean, younger writers and they just assume I've been a food writer the whole time, and I don't blame them. I don't know everything and everyone's done in in the professional career I don't, I'm not aware of it so you know but they don't know I mean I've, I feel, feel like I've had several lives now yeah, <laughs> and I feel the same I had a whole I started as a political reporter years ago in yeah. Raleigh North Carolina and then I was a a local music writer in Santa Barbara and then I was at Entertainment Weekly writing about film and and music then I was at Details for a whole decade mm. writing about everything yeah. like a contortionist, a mafia lawyer, a divorce lawyer, mm-hmm. um, these kind of rogue fight club-like body surfers in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote about a guy who repaired broken sex dolls. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Slade wow. Fierro is his name. Like, I, I, you know, so I did all these amazing, weird uh, American culture stories and stuff, um, most of which... No one has ever seen now because they're not the database of those stories is not online. There are no links to them. I did a ten-page, six-thousand-word profile of a Russian violinist wow. in Siberia. Okay. Wow. No one has ever seen. Won, won a, an ASCAP Deems Taylor Award was like a, an award for music writing. Yeah. But no, you know, most people I meet have no clue that I did that, which is totally understandable and fine. I don't have the kind of ego that needs right. needs stroking about that. It's just that it's almost like this whole ancient history of my career that's in boxes in our basement 
and probably will be for 20 years when I finally get a chance to unpack them. Yeah. Um, and a lot of celebrity profiles, I, for details, I did a cover story on Keanu Reeves, Andrew Garfield, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Cruise, mm, which was amazing. actually, Tom Cruise was actually a work of food writing. It was probably my first real work of food writing. How'd you, how'd you swing that? Was, because what was Tom that Cruise had this movie coming out called The Last Samurai, <laughs> which was, now it looks a little problematic in retrospect. It was kind of yeah. one of these white, white savior movies where right. he, he's like, he goes to Japan and you know, teaches the samurais how to fight, you know. Yeah. And, and, um, That's a great one these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Tom uh, wanted to go to... Um, a Japanese restaurant. So we went to Urasawa in Los Angeles where Masa Takayama's gotten his star. Mm -hmm. And actually up until the, when we made the reservation, Masa was still there. It was at the very moment that Masa left to go work, you know, to do Masa here in the city at the time, Morrison. Yeah. Center. So um, it's the highest, at that point in the United States, the highest level, you know, sort of omakase you're gonna get. I mean, yeah. absolutely exquisite. And, um, they gave us a private room, not unlike this one. Yeah. It was our own sanctum, our own celebrity sanctum. Just me and Tom Cruise, which let me tell you, is a weird experience because he looks like Tom Cruise. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some faces that are so famous. I interviewed Willie Nelson, it was the same thing. Like, I, and my mouth is moving? What am I doing? I'm, yeah. I, am I dreaming? I seem to be talking to Willie That's Nelson. Hilarious. You know, um, I, I met Julia Stiles once. And yeah. she said, yeah, you know, that she sort of introduced herself after we talked for a few minutes. Yeah. She introduced herself, by which time I figured it out. And I'm not such a celebrity spotter. But, and I, my response was, yeah, you look just like her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I'm it's really funny. smooth. Well, sometimes they don't necessarily, or maybe yeah. their faces aren't as iconic. But Tom Wolf, I, Tom Wolf, Tom Cruise, obviously, is one of the most iconic faces in Hollywood Absolutely. history. He's yeah, just, yeah. I mean, everyone knows him. My. 13-year-old son knows all about Tom Cruise like, and doesn't really care about that generation of movie stars. Probably doesn't care much about Brad Pitt. But Tom Cruise, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. This incredible omakase thing is delivered to us. This whole feast, this banquet is delivered to us at this long table, just me and Tom Cruise. And he didn't eat a bite. Really? No. Did he say He's just not about? interested. He's not interested in food. He was talking all about Japanese culture, how he'd read all about it. He's obsessed with samurais and everything. And I was like, y'all, are you going to eat this, man? Because this is like Japanese culture <laughs> like right here. Like, you know, I mean, he maybe nibbled here and there. Oh, but, but he was just like, he just sipped a Diet Coke. And I was not going to let this no beautiful food go to waste. But so I was like, every dish that got to, to, came to me I, and came to him, I would just take it. So I ate two of the meals basically yeah, and there was one like a like a custard you know um and it was topped with edible gold mm -hmm. and that became a sort of metaphor at the, in the piece the tom cruise profile started with this chawan mushi topped with the gold because it just sat there by his arm and he he kept saying to them don't you know don't remove that and and so it stayed there and I just looked at the gold the whole time and I was like what is going on with that and then at the very end he grabbed a spoon and he just slurped down the entire Shawan Mushi and the gold in like one fell swoop I guess that was his dinner 
Yeah. So, <laughs> did, did, were you able to glean any, like, was this just some kind of fucked up Scientology thing, or was this like oh, a Jack no. Dorsey eating disorder thing? Oh, I or? think the Hollywood people have, like, super strict regimens. They have super strict diets to continue looking the way they look, you know. They work out, like, four or five hours a day. I really do think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I try to control my eating as much as I can, but on this beat is pretty freaking hard. It's, and, yeah, you know, hard. I mean, there's certain things I shouldn't even be eating. I'm like, not really allergies, but things that are, you see on my face, I have sensitivities to things, but I, I have to eat them. Yeah. So, um, I kind of envy the idea of like being very controlling about your diet and just saying no. Like, I, I think it would be interesting to stop being a food writer at some point and go vegan. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting. I, I, I have gone vegan for, um, you know, like a week or two at a time, in part one time, because I was doing story on veganism, and I thought it'd be interesting. I didn't write about my personal experience, but I thought it'd be interesting to see how it felt. Ooh, I felt great. Yeah. My skin was glowing. Yeah. I mean, I, I really felt awesome. So, like, I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, ride the vegan train for, for years, so I don't know how long you feel that good. But um, this guy, Rich Roll, who's a... A prominent vegan and yeah. does a, a podcast he and I are kind of friendly and you know this guy's my age and he looks awesome mm-hmm. um, he's like super athletic and everything I don't know it would be nice to be like you know what I don't do that anymore I'm not eating that anymore yeah. that'll probably be the next move the next move yeah and I'll just write about something else altogether yeah, do you have any idea what that is? Like, do you, are there other things that are sort of like um, getting to that place? Well, that I have three. I have there? three book ideas right now, and one of them is um, is about food and sort of about a chef, uh, and the other two have nothing to do with that. I'm, t- I'm drawn. I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to do maybe some fiction or something. I feel so vain talking about this stuff. I don't. I don't feel like. You know, like when people do like some Jonathan Franzen style literary interview, I don't feel like that person. Like why? Like why would anyone care how I write? I'm so, totally. I'm not. I'm no, totally I get serious. It. I get it's it, like but I mean, you I'm know, just like some dude who happened to do a book. Well, well, you're you're. I mean, you're a terrific writer. Um, and, and I don't know. I guess. Well, I, I, suddenly I, people think so. I feel like it's so weird when like when when um there's these blurbs coming in because I mean, Ruth Reichel, Danny Shapiro, who. I, I, she said all these beautiful things about I've been reading her stuff since she started mm-hmm. since like playing with fire okay she's one of my favorite writers I couldn't I don't know her I'm not friends with her or anything she just seemed to love hungry I mean I don't even know how to process that I really don't yeah. I'm not like one of these writers like oh wonderful yes thank you Denny I'm like what yeah I want to cry. Well, that's great. But that's, <laughs> but that's great because, like, look, I've talked to, I mean, I have not done a, a ton of these interviews yet, but I have talked to a couple of people who clearly have had some media training and have had some experience. Oh, yeah. And it's not as good of an interview. Oh, you know, yeah. It, because there's it, anything that clouds or mitigates sincerity mm. makes it less interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't come here with a set of questions. I, yeah. I just read your book. Like, I read it once when I first got it. I read it again yesterday. And, um, I'm, you know, I had things in my mind. I was thinking about stuff in the car. Um, but, you know, I like a conversation, right? We've never met in person. Yeah. I like to learn things in yeah. real life because I think asking questions you already know the answer to, what's the point, right? I mean, that's the yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand that kind of manicured approach, you know? Like, that's one reason I always loved, like I said, Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan documentary yeah. or, or When We Were Kings, the Muhammad Ali documentary because, like, they're... The power of their presence and their words 
that comes through. And like, like Dylan in Don't Look Back is in some ways it's just an awful penny little man. Like he's really mean to people. He's mean to Donovan and stuff. I do not recommend that. But you get the sense that you're seeing, uh, getting a glimpse of, of what he was truly like at that phase. Brian Koppelman, the Billions guy, we were talking about that, and he said he disagrees. He thinks that he Dylan was kind of um, performative, that whole movie. That he's, he's actually being antagonistic as a form of theater to get attention. I think that's partly be. true, too. I think um, there is a scene where a reporter is just not getting it. And yeah, the time Dylan's magazine. actually trying to answer his question in good faith. He's like, really? well, you don't know anything about folk music. Yeah, yeah but, he's, but he's, actually, <laughs> he's actually making a sincere effort to communicate with this super square dude who's just yeah. not getting it. Yeah. And, and that actually sort of impressed me. He didn't dismiss him out of hand. Um, I think, you know, in the case of Dylan at that time, I think also it would just be difficult to be that fucking brilliant and to be able to see around corners that no one else could see. Yeah. It just puts you in a level where there aren't that many people you can actually talk to. Yeah, it's like he's holding lightning. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like some, some kind of Olympian thing. And by the way, not going to hold it forever. I mean, some brilliant albums came later, but there was a moment in the 60s where he was, and maybe up to like Blood in the Tracks, where he's, he's, he seemed to have lightning in his hands and could just throw it and change the culture. Yeah. I'm going to go electric now, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I'm going to go into hiding and then I'm going to make a country album. No, I'm, you know, I mean, wow. And, and so, you know, I, mean, I think Beyonce is in that position now. I mean, this is somebody who can absolutely transform the culture with an utterance. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, so profound and riveting a person, you know? So, um, I'd say more of that, please. I I think in some ways people like that show us how to be brave and show us how to live boldly. And Mm -hmm. I, that probably sounds silly and people mock me on Twitter, but I, I I think that like without, like there's a function. So stars have a function, you know, Mm -hmm. and poets have a function in that way too. It like helps us see and helps us say yes to things. That's what a lot of it is. It helps us say yes to things, which is kind of what I think my book was about. It's like Rene just kind of, he won't take no for an answer. So if he says like, meet me in Sydney, I mean, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars, but what the hell? Here we go. Drain the bank account. Lauren, you want to go? Let's go. Let's go to Sydney. We did. I mean, we paid for the whole thing. We didn't, we like, you know, and... Yeah, but you kind of have to, right? I mean, because you have to be all in on these things when when you are gifted with the opportunity to be in close proximity um, to have access with one of these people who is holding lightning and can change the culture yeah. uh, as a storyteller yeah. as a profiler of brilliant people um, you, you gotta go for it yeah right? you gotta I mean I think Chang Dave Chang is kind of in that position as well um, and uh, he seen it's from this Jim Seymour quote of like stars are stars Dave Chang is that person I mean his star is only ballooning you know, like he, he and um, my son Toby, thirteen. I mean, he he's so into Dave Chang. He like he like loves Ugly Delicious. Uh, he got a chance to meet Chang in Copenhagen. Toby did, and it was like he was over the moon. You know, he did a picture with Dave Chang. He talked to him a little bit about Korean food, which Toby loves. And it was so interesting to see that the impact that people can have. Can I give you a different example? This is a weird sure. thing. This is a weird side note. But when I was walking into craft yesterday for lunch there was a young man coming in who had Kwame Amuachi's book uh, notes from a young black chef but he had it under his arm and I think that book is remarkable Mm -hmm. I mean it's 
I read it in like two days. I, I couldn't stop reading it. I was, it was really opening my eyes. I was transfixed by it. And I, I, I said to the guy coming into craft, I said, oh, wow, the great book, you know. And, and he talked to me about how the book had, um, he'd gone to craft simply because Kwame had worked at craft and said good things about it in the book. Hmm. Like, and it was clear that Kwame's writing had made such an impact on this guy's life that actions were being taken because of that. That's the, the impact that a book can have. It can actually move the needle in people's lives. Yeah. You know, it shows you how, how deeply Kwame's book was needed and uh, is being cherished by a lot of people because it's, um, it's a story people can, that some people can relate to and, and uh, take courage from, you yeah. know. And so, so, so yeah, we can, we can wrap this up, but uh, uh, I'm curious now, in your role, because um, we started off and you mentioned, you know, some of your, the people on your Esquire list. Um, and, I mean, that's a, that's a fairly significant platform, right, with which... Oh, to, the Esquire list? Yeah, yeah. To, to draw yeah. attention to people who may not be super well-known, certainly nationally, they might be locally. And, um, yeah. and given what we, how we started off talking about, you know, the kind of wide-open uh, nature of, of restaurants today and how there's sort of any possible option is is now a viable way forward Um, yeah everything from pompous tasting menu to doing one thing only yeah um sort of like you said japanese like hole in the wall ramen joint style or whatever and uh and i'm sort of curious how you see like from that point of view does that make your job as a as a sort of curator um a list maker does that make it more exciting or more overwhelming? Oh, it makes it much more exciting. Yeah. I think that, it, look, when you're making one of those lists, it comes down to decisions. Like, do I go here? Like, let's say I land in Portland, Oregon, or I land in Dallas. Do I eat here? Do I eat here? Do I go there? Do I go there? I have a limited amount of time. I have a limited budget. I have a limited body. I can't actually have four dinners. Right. So where am I going to go? So those decisions affect your later decisions, which are very similar. Who am I gonna include? Who am I not gonna include? I like to do as much as I can to include people whose stories need to be told and people whose stories may have been marginalized in the past and neglected in the past. Now, I'm sure people would say, your number one was Angler in San Francisco, Josh Skanes, he's getting plenty of press. Okay, maybe I'm not talking about that. I just love that restaurant, as did a lot of people. But. Um, Carnitas Lonja in San Antonio, Petra and the Beast in Dallas. There's um, Celeste, a Peruvian restaurant in Boston. I thought, let's use the spotlight we have and the influence we have to help these people. They seem like great people. Their restaurants have a wonderful spirit. They're welcoming. The, the classic example, the, sort of the best examples right across the river here in Nyack. Uh, Carinderia is a Filipino restaurant. Oh yeah, we talked about Possibly meeting there. Yeah, like that's a right. Ago. Yeah, so it's um, uh, Paolo and Cheryl own it. They're a couple. Um, Paolo was, I believe, born in the Philippines, and uh, it's a weird coincidence as to why I get. It's similar to to Bruce. It just kind of happened. Like my wife Lauren has a friend named Jessica in Los Angeles who knows Cheryl and Paolo here in Nyack, and she kept hearing that there was this amazing Filipino food right across the river. So Lauren told me. And it's close, and I love the food, so why not? Let's go. The first time I went, I was, I was like floored. 
I sat there, this can't possibly be this good. This is crazy. We just drove across the river. Like, I mean, I say that because Nyack is not necessarily a place that people think of as a food destination. They should. Actually, a lot is happening there, but it doesn't really spring to mind. My sense was this will be a fun experience, but uh, will it be an Escobar Best New Restaurants contender? I I don't know. But then, I mean, bite after bite, every dish was absolutely delicious, and the place was so warm. It's incredible Hudson Valley beer curated beer selection. Um, there was a, a real sense of intention and spirit to the restaurant. And I was like, I gotta come back. Cause I'm, I just, I need confirmation. Like, right. and I, I brought back uh, Toby and Margo, my older kids. We pretty much ordered the whole menu. And by the time we got to the dessert, which was this incredible um, jackfruit cassava cake that uh, Cheryl had made yeah. based on, I think, her mom's or her grandma's recipe, which my, my son Toby wolfed down almost before I could get a bite. Yeah. He was like, this is the best cake I've ever had. I was like, okay, I'm including this. This place is great. Mm. Like, I'm, right now, I'm dreaming of going back. Like, yeah. I would go back now because I loved it so much. And if that's the feeling I have, that's the feeling I believe our readers will have. Yeah. And I have found that a lot of people I sent to Carindaria Everyone actually has told me they felt the same way. They maybe had skepticism that a place in Nyack was on the list. And as soon as they walked out, they're like, I can't wait to come back. It's absolutely delicious. I mean, Paolo worked with Floyd Cardoz at Tabla. He's, you know, he's a, he's a highly trained chef. So, um, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I feel a little guilty though, because poor, poor Cheryl, like the, the place had a line around the block for weeks it's very interesting in this age where we're, you know, we're so uh, digital-oriented, internet-oriented. Obviously, my Esquire list is, is, goes digital, is online. But you just kind of wonder if a brand like Esquire still has an impact. I'm here to tell you it does. Yeah. It has a huge impact. The, I mean, their business was exploding. Um, and all sorts of opportunities came, that, came mm-hmm. their way. And that makes me feel so good. Yeah. Right? I mean, because they're purveying that warm, fuzzy, excited. Yeah, because and they deserved it. They deserved it. They're working really hard. They're lovely people. They're cooking incredible food, and they just make people feel home. And that's the job of a restaurant at the high end, at the middle end, whatever. And and I thought, well, I could have picked myriad other places, myriad other places around the country that had gotten more press, and which were also excellent. But I thought with some of these selections, I want them to be surprises. Not just to surprise people, because I can essentially do a good deed for somebody, you know? Like, um, we can use this influence to change a few lives, you know? I hope, and I, I think it really does happen. I mean, Petra and the Beast, this is a really, I'm sorry to take up all your time. You're not, this, but not it, at all. I went to Dallas and I had a, an itinerary, you know? Yeah. I have a kind of a loose itinerary in my Gmail, my Google Calendar. But it's often subject to change. Mm-hmm. Because when I hit the town, I try to talk to people and listen to people. And I hit Dallas and all these people are like, whoa, cool, you're in Dallas. You got to go to Petra and the Beast. And one person in particular on Instagram would not let it go. He, she, I don't know who this person was. I can't remember. I keep trying to thank this person, but I don't know who it was because I can't find the text or the DM. But it was, this person was saying... This is a unique restaurant. This is a whole different vision, Petra and the Beast. It's, you know, I was like, okay. Who is that? I Google Misty Norris. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Yeah, I've heard of her as like kind of a coming up person. You know, so I go out there at like three in the afternoon. And I was the only customer. Hmm. <laughs> 
I mean, it was because it wasn't lunch and it wasn't dinner. But right. it was, and and um, I was like, went up. Misty's working there. One other guy. There's only two people. Misty and the, the the other person in the kitchen. And I was like, yeah, I'll pretty much have everything, you know, and close to everything. Sure. And she's like, okay, really? I was like, yeah, I want to try a bunch of stuff. And um, everything was served in a little paper boats like you get chili cheese fries in. Yeah. She's doing all sorts of trailblazing stuff with fermentation, foraging, and it was unlike any food I've ever tasted. Hmm. In a way, similar to the experience you have at Noma, although it didn't taste like Noma, it had the same effect on me. It's like I've never, I'm, bending I've never tasted this in my life. I've never even yeah. thought of a pasta tasting funky and sour like that, but also creamy. Wow, mm-hmm. what is happening here? Who is this person? Mm-hmm. Like I excitedly went up to her and like so she probably was scared. Like who is this? Is he, who is this man who wandered in? I was like, who? What are you doing? This is so exciting, you know. So I wrote about it. I put it in my list, and then maybe there's a ripple effect with that because then she ended up being in Food and Wine's Best New Chefs mm-hmm. on the cover there. She totally deserves. And Petra and the Beast was on the long list for Best New Restaurants James Beard Awards. This is a restaurant in a converted gas station in East Dallas that I don't know a lot of people would have heard about otherwise. So the idea that you can, you know, you can roll the boulder a little bit. You can start, maybe start the avalanche a little bit. And I mean, I'm not the only one by any means. I'm sure Brett Martin at GQ, um... You know, Jordana Rothman, Kush sure. Shaw, a lot of other people do these lists. It's the same thing. You can't you can't have a an effect. And um, well, you can you can amplify voices like like you said. Should amplify be voices exactly. Give a signal boost to to people who might otherwise just get lost in the in the chaotic infinity of the. There's the so much media. information. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you can't fake it. You can't just do it um, because you think it would look nice. I mean, you have to really feel it, but when you, you know, that happens a lot that you really do feel it and you're sort of exhilarated. Like I was talking about the intoxication I used to feel with music. Yeah. A lot of times I'm traveling around and I have, you have a lot of mediocre meals. You have a lot of burrata. Let me tell you, a lot of fluke crudo, a yeah. lot of stuff you just, you've seen it a million times. It's not original. It tastes fine, but there's no real vision. It's like listening to a million advanced copies of new records and you're just kind of flipping through them you don't hear anything and suddenly you know you hear an Anderson Packer or Aldous Harding or somebody you know who who leaps out with music it's the same thing with um with restaurants now suddenly you go to a Petra and the Beast uh or Bavel in Los Angeles you know or Carindaria over the river in Nyack and your mind is on fire again yeah that's what it's all about it is what it's all about. Cool, man. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Sorry I babble so much. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. It's the good stuff. Jeff Gordinier. He's The Gordinier on Instagram. His book, Hungry, drops July 9th. Available for pre-order now. And you can find his writing in Esquire, the Times Magazine, and lots of other places. I am Cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, theme music by my son Milo Barrett, smilob.com. Thanks for listening. Please, if you have the time and the inclination, uh, give me a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends. And please come back next week. <laughs>